Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The focus of our message this afternoon is what we have here in verse 10. If the Bible had a purpose statement where you had to summarize the eternal plan of God into one sentence, this verse would be a solid contender. The purpose of God from the very beginning, even before Genesis chapter 1, was to carry out this redemptive plan. Creation exists as the stage on which this work is carried out, and generations come and go, as the players enter and exit the stage, and all of it exists for this very purpose. That God would glorify Himself through the saving of sinners. That God would take what is broken and make it whole. That He would shine a light into dark places to retrieve what was lost. That He would turn enemies of God into children of God. If the plan of God could be broken down into the shortest and most succinct statement, it might read, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the main idea for why man was created and why all things exist. God's plan to save a people to His everlasting praise. And make no mistake, it is a work of God from beginning to end. The divine activity can be seen in this verse through two verbs. The first is to seek, and the second is to save. Both are accomplished by God. The reason this must be the work of God is because of man's condition. The Bible describes man not as one who seeks, 
but as one who flees. Man is not running to God, but is always running from God. This is why the Bible always describes salvation as the activity of God. God must pursue sinners because sinners will never pursue Him. I always reference Genesis 3 when we discuss this subject because it is the very foundation. When Adam sinned in the garden and fellowship with God was lost, he went and hid himself. And it was God who went in search of him. And this is the pattern through all of Adam's offspring, through every generation. And this is our natural disposition. It never changes apart from God's intervention. Let me just share a few texts you probably know to make this point. Isaiah 53.6 The prophet says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Psalm 14.2 The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And you continue, and the answer is clearly, no, there are not. Romans 3.10-12, Paul citing a bunch of Old Testament texts, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Whenever an assessment is given of the human condition, it is always negative. It is always man pursuing a course away from God. What we have in Romans 3 is not a description of the worst of the worst, but of man's nature apart from divine intervention. To put it in a word, man is lost. While people may be very religious throughout history, do not be deceived. The Bible describes the pursuit of religion as part of the sinful condition. Look what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 21 and following. This is man's condition. For although they knew God... In other words, they they have knowledge of God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So civilizations throughout ancient history have all known that God exists, and yet instead of pursuing the truth about God, they create a God in the form of an image and they worship that instead. In other words, they say, we want God on our terms. We want a God that we can control. 
And of course, history is replete with examples of man's idolatry from the Aztecs to the Egyptians to the Canaanites to the Greeks and Romans. There's an awareness that God is, but there is not a desire to know Him in truth. So, I've heard people argue, well, man's very religious. There's God-seekers all over the place. I mean, look at all the world religions. The Bible calls man's religions sin, and that is not a pursuit of God. It is a pursuit of a substitute for God. That is what the Scripture clearly teaches. Now, instead of letting all sinners go their own way, letting them reap what they deserve, God actually came down to His creation to save. He goes after them. He pursues them. Jesus says He does it like a woman who sweeps her house searching for a lost coin. He does it like a shepherd going after a lost sheep. God is the seeker. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I should pause here because this presents an apparent contradiction in the Scripture. I say apparent because anytime you think you have a contradiction, it just means you have to study things further. But Scripture commands us to seek after God. So here I am saying man doesn't seek after God. He never does. But the Scripture commands man to seek after God. I will give you a few examples of this. He tells apostate Israel, dead in their sins, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. Or in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to the pagan idolaters and on Mars Hill, he tells them, Acts 17.26, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Or there's that statement in that very familiar 11th chapter of Hebrews where Paul, or the writer says in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And is not the Gospel proclamation itself a call to turn to God? Seek the Lord while He may be found. So we're commanded to seek after God, and yet we're told that no one seeks after God. And that sounds like a contradiction until you realize that those who do seek after God as they are commanded are those whom God is seeking. The key to this paradox, this mystery, this apparent contradiction, is that is the divine seeker 
who is the one pursuing the sinner. And when a sinner is moved upon to seek after God, it is because God has initiated it. Those are the ones who seek after God. Now, we covered the story with Zacchaeus last week. We're not going to get into the whole thing, but I couldn't let this lie. Because verse 10, this verse I want to talk about is so pregnant with truth. It's what the Bible is all about, and I didn't want to just skip over it. But notice there's a human element here, and there's a divine element here. Verse 3, it says, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. But then, if you drop down to verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, verse 3 has this man, Zacchaeus, seeking Jesus. And I argued last week, I do not think this is mere curiosity. This is a rich and proud man who has betrayed his own people, and yet he is running and climbing a tree, which would have been embarrassing to him because he was desperate to see this Jesus. And I think what Zacchaeus had heard was this Jesus receives sinners like him. And so... This is confirmed to Zacchaeus. This is no normal teacher because Jesus walks up and says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. And we are told that Zacchaeus receives him joyfully. And by the end of the account, what do you know? Zacchaeus becomes a disciple. But verse 10 Jesus summarizes the entire account by saying that it was his work. That was accomplished. The whole thing was about Jesus seeking the lost. He approaches this man. He calls him by name. And the end result is the salvation of another lost soul. For the Son of Man came to save and to seek the lost. When Jesus came into the world, it was not in the hopes that man would seek after Him, but with the full understanding that no one would seek after Him and that He is the one who must do the seeking. So in John 4, we discover Jesus must go through Samaria and we find out why because He has a woman at the well that He he chooses to save. Or he walks up to Zacchaeus in the tree. He says, I must stay at your house today. Or he handpicks his disciples and calls them to follow after him, even picking the one who would betray him. And the, the testimony of Scripture is clear that sinners don't find themselves just like coins don't find themselves just like sheep don't find themselves. They must be sought and they must be found. God could never sit back as humanity 
plunges into utter spiritual darkness and say, they'll eventually figure it out. They'll eventually find me. No, it was always necessary that He come down to them. The plan of God was always that Jesus would come into the world to save sinners and not just to make salvation possible. If Jesus just came to offer salvation to darkened, hardened, spiritually dead rebels who are running from God, no one would ever come. Jesus came to save, not just to offer salvation to those who are willing. Now, there are some who teach that Jesus came to make salvation possible, and it's up to people to respond to His invitation so that He can save them. This is very popular in our day, very popular in the megachurch movement. And you might even read parts of your Bible and get the impression that salvation is people putting their trust in Jesus. The gospel call goes out and some people will trust in Him. And Jesus does offer salvation. But when you get into those parts of the Bible where the mechanics of salvation are explained, in other words, you pop the hood and you get into the nooks and crannies of what salvation is, it is always described as a work that God does. And man's condition is always described as being impossible for him to come to Christ. It's more than a divine invitation. Salvation is a divine accomplishment. Jesus did not come to seek with the hopes that dead, rebellious sinners would trust in Him because He knew that would never happen. They are hiding from Him. They are fleeing from Him. And that's what it means to be lost. But Jesus came to seek and Jesus came to save. Now I know when the Lord saved me, I was not looking for God. I was looking for relief from my problems. I was looking for freedom from my addictions. I was searching for a way out of this sort of slavery that I had found myself in, although I would not have called it that. But I was not searching for God, I have absolutely no doubt. But thanks be to God, He was searching for me and He used those problems and He used those addictions to bring me to a place of surrender to where He could reveal Christ to me as my greatest treasure and set me free. And that is the testimony of not only millions of people throughout the world, That is the testimony of people in the Scriptures. Think about the Gospels. What are people coming to Jesus for? Relief from leprosy in one case. Blind man wants to see in another case. 
A sick woman who's been bleeding wants to be healed in another case. A man wants his daughter raised from the dead in another case. I mean, there is a presenting problem that people have that causes them to search Jesus out. But it's not that they're searching for God. They just want help. Until Jesus reveals Himself to them. Until they encounter a God who has come to save them. Now, this is where theology becomes very important because the Bible teaches that there are those whom God has chosen to save. They are His people. That is one term. Another term is His elect. Another term is His sheep. Another term is His bride. Another term is His children. Some theologians call this group spiritual Israel. These are the ones He came to save. Now I know people struggle with this. I struggled with this for years. This concept that God has a people whom He will save implies that there are people whom He will not save. Now, if you struggle with this concept like I used to, let me give you a picture of what God gave us in the Old Testament that you normally don't struggle with. Israel. Who are Israel? God's chosen people. You don't struggle with that. God shows them in the midst of pagan nations. He set them apart for Himself. Not the Hittites. Not the Assyrians. Not the Babylonians. Not the Egyptians. Do you know when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, He does not even offer to save the Egyptians? Now, if you can accept that and you say, oh yeah, no, that's cool. God had a chosen people. What's wrong with that? It was Israel. It was the nation. If you can accept that, you can accept the church being God's chosen. And the only difference in the New Testament era is it's not in one geographical location, but it is people scattered throughout the earth. The Bible calls us a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Old Testament Israel. New Testament spiritual Israel. Okay, God's chosen people. And this is His divine rescue plan that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to gather His children, His elect, His bride, And He seeks them, and He saves them, and guess how many are lost? None. None of those whom He seeks and saves are lost. We're going to look at that in a minute. Now, people have strong philosophical objections to this. I say philosophical because it's usually not strong biblical objections to this that I hear. It's usually like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why would God do, that, do it that way? 
uh, what about man's free will? Or they don't think it's a beautiful concept that God has a people that He has come to save. But if you can accept God choosing Israel, can you not also accept God choosing His church? Now there are a lot of people who do not accept that and they spend a lot of time trying to get God off the hook by twisting the clear statements that God makes about election and predestination and choosing, and they turn those Scriptures around and say, well, God chooses, but you see, He looks down into the corridor of time and He sees who believes, and then He chooses them on that basis. But that's, that's turned upside down to us choosing Him. That's not the language that He uses. And if God looks down the corridor of time and see who chooses Him, that's God learning something. And let me tell you something, God learns nothing. God does not have to learn. So, I understand, I sympathize. They see these clear statements in Scripture where mankind is called to repent and believe and they share the gospel with their neighbors, and they want to see people come to Jesus, and they come across these subjects like God choosing, and they say, whoa, 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 wait a second. That doesn't sound like what's going on here. And it's a philosophical, not a scriptural objection. Now, if you are one of those, I want you to set those objections aside for a moment, and I want you to listen to the testimony of Scripture. And it's okay to wrestle with these ideas. We are called to believe Scripture, and so let's let Scripture speak for itself, and we will start in the Old Testament. I had to be very selective because I ended up cutting multiple pages from this sermon because I could point you in so many different places. Let's start in a text from Ezekiel about God searching for His people. Ezekiel 34.11 For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Notice the possessive language, my sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And you drop down to verse 16. He says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And New Testament Christians look back on that and they say, this is talking about Jesus. This is the God of the Old Testament saying, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to gather my people together. And I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted, just like when Jesus came. 
And if this shepherd-sheep language sounds familiar, it's because you've read it in the Gospels. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is an agrarian society. They live off the land. There are many shepherds among them. Men have sheep who are theirs, and their neighbors have sheep that are not theirs. And Jesus says here that he has sheep, and they are his own, and he says he knows them. Now, a sheep is a term for a disciple. We know he's talking about believers. He's not talking just about this little band of followers in the first century. He's talking about all the way through to the 21st century and maybe beyond. Who knows? But notice he says he knows them. It's very personal. It's very possessive. He says they're mine. How do you know who are his sheep? Jesus, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. These are the ones that the Son has come to seek and to save. And they are His. Now, Jesus is teaching this, and the Jews think He's nuts. They think He's crazy. They accuse Him of having a demon. They said, if you're the Messiah, why don't you just tell us? John 10.25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now this is very important language here. Don't miss it. He does not say, because you do not believe, you are not my sheep. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why don't they believe Jesus? Some of the people were believing Jesus. Why don't they believe Jesus? He tells them. He's the good shepherd. He has sheep that are his own. He says, you're not my sheep. Another place, John 6.37. I alluded to this last week. Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me but raise it up on the last day. 
So the Father gives a people to the Son, and the Son comes to redeem them. And Jesus says, how many is he going to lose? Not a single one. You say, but people are dying without Christ all the time. People reject Christ all the time. None of his sheep do. Not a single one of his people will reject him. So you also see here the cooperation between the Father and the Son. The Father chooses them and gives them to the Son, and the Son purchases them through His death. And we don't see it in this text, but the Holy Spirit is the seal who God the Spirit comes and seals us for the day of redemption. It's Father, Son, and Spirit all working together to save this group called the elect the children of God, spiritual Israel, the sheep, the bride, all of these different metaphors. This is more than a divine offer. This is divine accomplishment. If you believe that the death of Jesus did not accomplish salvation, but just made salvation possible then it is reasonable to think that if no one believed, Jesus would have died in vain. I mean, imagine Jesus going to the cross and doing all that and saying, if anyone will come, please come, and none come. But thankfully, that is not the testimony of Scripture. Jesus came to save a people from their sins, and He not only offers it through the Gospel, But in the case of the elect, He accomplishes salvation. In other words, it's not a potential salvation. It is an actual one. He raises the dead to spiritual life. Now again, this is where people want to put on the brakes. They have philosophical objections to this. This does not sound like a very good, loving kind of doctrine. And from a human level, it does not seem fair that God would save some and not all. Now, these are the same ones who never complain that God did not save the Hittites. They don't have any problem for some reason with God choosing Israel and not the other nations. But the concept is the same. Now, you must, must, must recognize that those whom God does not save are not people who want to be saved. They are people who do not want God. They are running and hiding from God. It is a moral decision. It is an act of the will that they are saying no to God. It's not like God is not saving some people who just really want to be saved, but God says no to them. We're talking about rebels and sinners who hate God, and if they could, they would do away with God. They do not want Him, and they are content in not wanting Him. Now, I try to look for illustrations to help us think through these things, and I always fall short, but imagine there's a judge behind the bench And he has a hundred inmates before him who are all heading for the death penalty. 
and he makes a judicial decision to to um, pardon 30 of those men. So there's 100 men. They're all going to the death penalty. He chooses to pardon 30 of those men, and somehow he does it justly. His mercy is not an injustice. In other words, someone in the room can't complain, why don't you save everybody? Why are you a bad judge by not saving everybody? We cannot look at His mercy as an injustice. And in the case of God, He gives mercy to some. He gives justice to some. And He gives injustice to none. And Paul, in Romans chapter 9, you don't believe any of this? Go home and read Romans chapter 9. That is the clearest. I don't even have that in my PowerPoint. Just go home and read it. Paul has to defend this doctrine because he knows the audience is going to object to it and say, that's not fair. And you know what Paul's point is in that chapter? He's God. That's his answer. Does not God have a right to do what He will? Some receive mercy. Some receive justice. No one receives injustice. And may I remind you, had God not intervened and sent Christ into the world, none would be redeemed. So, we have two different ideas here. God is sovereign. Man is morally accountable. And I will admit, it is difficult, if not impossible, to get a full grasp of this concept where God, where both of those things are true. Because God gave man a will, and man rejects God, and yet it's the plan of God in certain Cases that man reject God. And so we start to try to put these things together and we realize that this is above our pay grade, so to speak. These are hard things to reconcile. Earlier I called it a paradox or a mystery, but I think there's a better term to define this apparent conflict. And I'm going to teach you a new word today, at least... I think for most of you, and that word is antinomy. Antinomy refers to a real or apparent mutual incompatibility of two laws. A fundamental and apparently unresolvable conflict. In other words, you could have two things that are equally true, but they seem to oppose each other, but they actually do not. And while they appear to us to be mutually incompatible, they are not incompatible in the divine mind. God is sovereign. Man is morally accountable. And while that is hard for us to reconcile, the Bible clearly teaches both. So there are no innocent people. There are rebels and God-haters, every one 
who is not in Christ. And you say, but there are so many nice people in my neighborhood. Are you telling me that little old lady down the street who makes sugar cookies for all the neighborhood kids is a God-hater? The Bible describes us that way. We suppress the truth in righteousness. We don't love the truth. We're not searching for God. The God who gave us everything. Incidentally, I've shared the gospel with a lot of people and little old ladies are some of the nastiest I've ever shared the gospel with. (laughs) Give me tattooed bikers. They are intimidating to look to, but I start talking to them, teddy bears. And I see this sweet little old lady and I mention the name Jesus and she wants to tear my head off. So we do not want to object to something that God teaches in the Bible. Amen? You may wrestle with these ideas. You may have some philosophical objections to some of these ideas. But the answer is always, what does the Scripture say? I had Richard read Ephesians 1. And this is where Paul tells this church of believers, he says, you know what? It might seem like you believed in... Christ on your own, but this was God saving you from before the foundation of the world. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes this letter to the church. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace. Now, the language is clear. The Verbs are clear. The one who is doing the choosing and the predestining is clear. Discovering God's will in the matter is clear. But the Ephesians believed. He tells them they were predestined, they were chosen, but they also believed. And he doesn't leave that out. He says in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. This was their experience. They heard and they believed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So they did hear, just like you did, and they did believe, just like I assume you did. But when you pop the hood and look at the mechanics of the thing. This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And Paul says, to the praise of His glory, meaning we're supposed to read this and say, I must worship Him for this truth. Not fight about it with other churches. Not argue about it with other Christians. It is supposed to be something that causes us to worship Him.
Their salvation was not some random event. There was not something special in them that caused them to believe and not their unbelieving neighbor. It was this thing called divine grace. Human will and God's sovereignty is like a door. I heard this many years ago. I don't know if it's helpful or not. Let's say there's a door and it says all who may enter, all who will enter may come. And the person decides, I'm going to go through the door. And on the other side of the door, it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. When we are acting and believing and trusting, it is fulfilling the will of God. Last one. This is Paul describing this elsewhere. He's writing to the Corinthians this time. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Drop down to verse 22. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. This is everyone in the world. Greeks and Gentiles are interchangeable, so Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, everybody. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you have Jews in one group. You have Gentiles in another group, which is all of humanity represented. There is no third category. And then, out of that group of Jew and Gentile, you have believers. And who are they? They are the ones who are called. That is a salvation call. That is a transformational call. These are God's people. These are the elect. They are the children of God, the bride, spiritual Israel, however you want to call it. And it's not foolishness to them. They see the power and wisdom of God. He continues, verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did God do all that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Notice again the language, God chose... God chose, God chose. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't God just set up some kind of standard and then anyone in humanity who met that standard, he would say, okay, I'm going to save you. That's what the Jews thought God did. That's what the world religions think God does. But no, salvation is of Him. And it is for His glory. And when we who are in Christ get to heaven someday, 
No one's going to be patting themselves on the back. No one's going to be engaged in some sort of self-congratulation. They are all going to have one thing in common, and that is they know they don't deserve to be there. They will know it is because Jesus sought them and Jesus saved them and there was nothing in them to commend themselves. Verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wasn't sure how to end this one, so I'm just going to (laughs) pray. Oh God, may our boast be in You. May we not look to ourselves. May we not look to our works. May we know and be satisfied in the truth that You sought us and You loved us and You saved us for Your own eternal glory. And may that make us worshipers of the living God. Oh, Father, even if there are some here who have really struggled with this concept, I pray, Lord, that You would have them wrestle with these things and search the Scriptures, and Lord, that the end result might be greater ability to worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.